Before we go to prayer, I'd like to read a passage from Revelation chapter 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Father, we look forward to that day, that hour, that moment when Christ returns and calls us to be with him. Father, we're so grateful for your faithfulness and your mercy as we read through these accounts of the men and women of the Old Testament, we see so clearly the mercy of God just overshadowing every, every life and every scene. And Lord, we know that it is only by your mercy that we even exist today in this world and that we have all the good things that we have. It's by your mercy that you are the Father of lights uh, from whom comes every good and perfect gift. And Lord, we just commit our way to you today and our hour here together, that you will, be our, your, you will be our teacher through your word, and that we will see your truth, and that it will set us free even as Jesus proclaimed the truth would do. Lord, bless each one here. Grant strength, grant your touch for this hour and this day. I pray for those not here, those that are away, that you will keep them safe and bring them safely back to us. We're just grateful to you, Lord, and, and we do want to offer you our thanksgiving. We're grateful that our country still has a holiday such as that, even though it's been badly commercialized, we know that there still are millions who do truly give you thanksgiving. And we uh, praise you for your hearing and answering our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. Two weeks ago, in our study of the 16th chapter of 2 Samuel, we discovered that uh, David and his loyal followers were driven out of Jerusalem by a powerful coup that was intended to actually drive David from the throne and to replace him with his son Absalom. David left Jerusalem not because the forces were at the wall, you know, the barbarians were at the gates. David left Jerusalem because he didn't want the city to suffer the ravages of civil war. What you see in the life of David is constant concern for others and, and for the general situation, which is truly characteristic of a godly king. We noticed last time that he was fleeing towards the fords of the Jordan. I, I put this back up here again just so that we will be reminded that when we talk, when, when we study about Jerusalem at the time we are dealing with in 2 Samuel. We're not talking about the Jerusalem that some of you may have seen if you have been to the Holy Land. What you see is the city that was built later, beginning in the time of uh, Solomon and, and later. And uh, the current walls, of course, as I've said several times before, the upper portion of the current walls were put up by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 15th century. He was a Turkish sultan. And he built the upper walls that you actually see and can walk along the top of if you visit Jerusalem. The lower courses, of course, some of them date way back to the days of Herod the Great. Those big ashlars, the huge stones, they're at the foundation of the wall, were actually put in there by Herod the Great. And so much of the um, city that you see is, is the city of Jesus' time. 
well, when I say that, I say the site of Jesus' time. Jesus' actual places where he walked are about 30, 40 feet below the street level where you are today uh, because of the great destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, which tore everything down and flattened the city. And all that rubble, of course, was piled on the old city, and they built on top of it several times. The city has been destroyed more times than just about any other city in history. But what we're talking about is this city right here. Uh, this is the Jebusite city, the city of David, the city that David captured from the Jebusites. It was very small, just a few acres, uh, 10 at the most. And it's outside the walls of the current city. It's on this hill, which is called the Ophel, O-P-H-E-L. And this valley over here doesn't exist anymore. It's been filled in, the Tyropean Valley or Central Valley, which used to run down through. It's all been filled in through time. This valley, of course, does continue to exist, the valley of the Cadron River. And so when David fled, he fled out of the city, out of the city, and down into the valley of the Cadron, across the Cadron, and up the other side, because over here is the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's not far. Uh, it, it, you know, you could walk from the city uh, down in the valley and up to the top of Mount of Olives in a half hour easy. It's not a, not a long walk. The Kedron, which of course, as I mentioned to you before, the word Kedron means uh, turbulent, uh, you know, turbulence, uh, a turbulent, dark, turbulent river, which of course, if you go there today, the Kedron is nothing. I mean, most of the time, the valley is empty, uh, dry. And when it does rain, you know, there's some water running in, but just a creek. But in the day we're talking about, they didn't have all the controls they have today, and uh, there was very low population density, and so the rivers ran a lot more, uh, f more full than they do uh, today. So David has fled out of the city and, and up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and he went down the other side, and that's where he met Ziba, you remember, and Ziba brought him food and supplies for his journey over. And uh, as, he, as he is leaving Jerusalem, his ultimate goal is to reach from Jerusalem, go down the escarpment here, and to reach the Jordan at the fords of the Jordan, which uh, here's Gilgal and Jericho is where you see this green spot right here. Cross the Jordan, not too far east of Jericho. Those are the main fords in the lower part of the Jordan. And so that's where, he, that's where his goal is. That's where he's headed uh, when he um, encounters Shimei. Remember Shimei? Uh, we read about him last time. Uh, he, he was traveling with his thousand or more, well, at least a thousand warriors, plus probably several hundred, maybe even thousand other people that were traveling with him, families and so forth. And he was dogged by this semi-crazed individual named Shimei, who was a relative of King Saul. And Remember, he was throwing rocks at David, down, down the hill at David, and he was yelling and screaming at David how David was a worthless fellow and, and how he had usurped the throne from the family of King Saul and he was a bloody man and all that kind of rhetoric. David's bodyguard, particularly Abishai, asked permission to go up and cut the guy's head off. That would, of course, silence his tongue. Uh, but, but David said, no, no, leave him be because it may be the Lord has sent him to keep me humble. <laughs> and so he did nothing. Well, after our class uh, two weeks ago, uh, Leroy was concerned that I didn't finish the story <laughs> uh, because Shimei did not get away ultimately with blasphemy against the Lord's anointed. 
The scripture is very, very clear about this, particularly having to do with the Old Testament. David was a perfect example of this, that to blaspheme the Lord's anointed is, like, is to blaspheme God, in, in effect. And what we discover was that, first of all, after David defeats Absalom, which we'll be seeing as we get into the 17th chapter and the 18th chapter, when David is on his way back, Shimei <laughs> sees the handwriting on the wall, you know, it's like you're a dead man. So he goes and he's the first to show up and to greet David as he returns across the Jordan and to bow before him and apologize and, you know, and blubber and, and fuss and, and to say he was a fool and everything. And David said, it's okay, I won't kill you. But <laughs> David does not forget. Let me read, and this is getting ahead, uh, but that's okay. Uh, Lord knows when we'll get to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. David is, is ready to die, and he's giving his final uh, words of exhortation to Solomon. And he says in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8, And behold, there is with you Shimei, of the son of Gera, the Benjaminite of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Maonim. But when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him. And you may bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. Now what Solomon will do, without reading a bunch of passages here, Solomon will bring him into the city and say, all right, Shimei, you will stay in the city of Jerusalem for the rest of your life. The first, day, the first day you step outside the gate of Jerusalem, you're a dead man. Scripture says Shimei lived in Jerusalem for many days. But then a couple of his um, servants, slaves, ran away. And he thought, well, I better go get him. And so he left Jerusalem <laughs> to go get him. He came back and Solomon cut his head off. And, and so Shimei uh, had his, uh, to quote Leroy, comeuppance, <laughs> comeuppance. <laughs> and, and that's true. Uh, the Lord does deal with those who blaspheme his name or the name of his anointed. And so he would do for this man. Since his revolt had apparently been successful beyond his wildest dreams, Absalom was in a quandary. What do I do now? I, I know if you've ever been in a situation where you've planned it out, you know it's going to be difficult to do these things, and when all of a sudden the way just falls open to you, you think, oh, you know, all my plan doesn't need to go into effect now because all this has been accomplished. Now what do I do? You know, kind of deal. And so that leaves him with a desire to get some advice. And so if we go to 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20, which is where we pick up today, we read these words. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your advice, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of the Lord. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. Absalom had taken Jerusalem without a fight. His dad had left the city with his entourage and gone down to the Jordan. And so 
Absalom is thinking, whoa, you know, this has gotten to be awfully easy here. It seems like my dad has abdicated, even though David specifically did not abdicate. He did not abdicate the throne. He simply moved to get out of harm's way and to save the city. And he left his concubines behind, partly as a statement that he had not abdicated. But Hushai, remember, David's close friend who, who said, I want to go with you, David. And David said, no, you're too old. You slow me down. You go back to Jerusalem and, and you tell Absalom that you will be his friend and advisor and then, then counteract the advice of Ahithophel. Now, remember, Ahithophel had been David's chief advisor. And Ahithophel had chosen to be a part of the plot against David on behalf of Absalom. Before Absalom had even declared his coup, Ahithophel had joined him. And uh, so he was now, and Ahithophel would be there to advise Absalom, and so David won somebody he could trust to counteract the advice of Ahithophel. And so this is the situation. And, and Absalom could think, you know, I've got Ahithophel, I've got David's closest friend and counselor as well, and Hushai, I, I, you know, I'm in good shape here. The city's been abandoned. David, my father's down at uh, Jordan with just a few people. Hey, you know, I've about got this thing whipped. But what shall I do next to make sure that these events are secured? So he asks Ahithophel, what shall I do? Ahithophel has now become absolutely openly associated with the rebellion of Absalom. He's committed himself. He's on Absalom's side. Therefore, knowing that David was a man who loved Absalom and was a man of mercy, he was afraid that somehow that it might work out that David and Absalom will kiss and make up and that's going to leave Ahithophel way out at the end of the branch with it about completely sawed off, you know, because he has committed himself to the rebellion against his former uh, king and as a result, where is he going to be? So he wants Absalom to commit himself to the rebellion to the ultimate. In other words, Absalom will not accept a treaty with his father he will only fight to the very death. And if he's willing to do that, then Ahithophel has at least a measure of security because he actually felt that Absalom would, would win in, an, in a confrontation with David. And so what he's, his advice was to flaunt his rebellion and convince the whole nation that there was no turning back. As I used as an illustration before, but it fits here as well, and that is when when the Bolsheviks took over in November of 1917 in Russia, they put the Tsar under arrest and they moved him over to Ekaterinburg, which is just on the east side of the Ural Mountains, he and his whole family. And then in July of the following year, when it looked like the white forces were closing in on the red forces, the pro-Tsar forces were having some success against the forces of the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks decided to execute the Tsar and all of his family to commit them irreversibly to the cause. We have now killed the Tsar, we've killed his wife, we've killed his son, we've killed his four daughters. And therefore, there is no turning back. There's no kissing and making up with the Tsar's forces. I mean, if we don't win, we're dead. So we got to win. This is the same kind of idea. You're going to make yourself so odious to your father and, and before all of the nation that you're committed now and there's no turning back. There's no kissing and making up with David. So he was to publicly go into the royal harem, these 
ten or so concubines that David had left behind, and have sexual relationships with his own father's wives, in effect. And that this would constitute absolute commitment to the coup without any way of resolving the issue, and it would eliminate any possibility of reconciliation. The lines would be clearly drawn. Everybody would know they're either for David or they're for Absalom. There's no, no gray area in between here. You know. Ahithophel believed that what this would ultimately result in is either David being exiled and forever kicked out of the kingdom to die off in Moab or someplace, or it would lead to civil war. Civil war between the forces of David and the forces of Absalom, and Ahithophel felt that probably uh, Absalom would succeed. Actually, Ahithophel believed, probably believed, that David wouldn't fight his own son. That David would say, eh, well, you know, I'm just going to let Absalom have it because it's not worth all the bloodshed. I'm not going to fight my own son. I don't want to kill my own son. And, and therefore, he wouldn't fight. Or if he did fight, Absalom's forces would overwhelm David's forces, and it would be all over in favor of Absalom. So, a large, colorful tent was erected on the roof of the palace for everybody to see. Oh, there's this big tent on the roof of the palace. And then in broad daylight, Absalom would go into the tent with the concubines and everybody would know that in the process he was violating these women. This was a perfect, or not perfect, this was an absolute fulfillment of a prophecy that had been made by Nathan. Uh, we won't go back to the 12th chapter, but you remember that God through Nathan had proclaimed to David that one day, and let me quote uh, the statement there, I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. It's exactly what is fulfilled here in Absalom's violation of these women. Verse 23, which reads, And the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of the Lord, so was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded both by David and Absalom. This verse leads beautifully into the 17th chapter because Ahithophel was considered to be a vastly superior advisor to anyone else. The only one who was on par with him was Hushai. And Hushai was in, in uh, Absalom's camp too, he thought. And, and so he goes to Ahithophel, he gives him this advice, and, and uh, Absalom carries out this advice. If he, and even David, had considered the advice of Ahithophel at being so excellent and so like the word of God, you can imagine that would only take, the only thing that would keep Absalom from further following Ahithophel's advice would be divine intervention. And that's exactly what we find in the 17th chapter. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 17. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men, that I may arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted, and will terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee, then I will strike down the king alone, and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people shall be at peace. 
So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Those words of Ahithophel, are a, they have a slight tint of the words of Caiaphas. Remember, he said that it would be better for one man to die for the nation than that many would die. And in effect, he's saying it's better that David die and the whole nation be at peace than that a major war break out here. The coup had been incredibly successful up to this point. Absalom was in possession of the capital. That was no small thing. You look back through the history of, of the human race, you discover that many times other cities are captured before the capital of a kingdom will fall. For example, when the Turks launched their attack against the Byzantine Empire, and of course you all remember the story well, that as the Turks forced the Byzantines back, the, the last place to fall was Constantinople or Istanbul, which wouldn't fall until 1453, after hundreds of years of fighting against the Turks. But here, Absalom walks in and basically the city is handed to him on a, on a silver platter. Well, you know, I've got the capital, I've got the nerve center of the kingdom. The rest of it ought to be a piece of cake. But he felt still somewhat insecure because his father was still on the loose. And Absalom knew a few things about his father. So he logically turns to Ahithophel for advice again. Ahithophel had given him this advice and, uh, you know, he had followed it and he had violated the, the concubines and basically committed the whole coup to pushing to the very end. And so he asked Ahithophel what he should do to secure the kingdom for himself. I think it's important for us to constantly be reminded of the fact that these accounts that we read here, although they deal with flesh and blood, men and women, are accounts of spiritual warfare. There is a titanic spiritual battle going on here. Uh, Satan himself, I think personally, is there involved. Because where else in the world would it have been more important for, for the enemy to be personally than at the center of what God is doing? And so I, I believe Satan himself with many of his minions are here. And, and this is a titanic spiritual warfare that is going on here. And who is inspiring Ahithophel? You know, it may say in the 23rd verse of the previous chapter that, that his advice was as if one inquired of the word of the Lord. It says as if. It doesn't say it was the word of the Lord because it definitely is not the word of the Lord. God never said to Absalom, go in and violate these women. You know, God just doesn't say things like that because it's in direct contradiction to his word. And, and so Ahithophel is under Satan's guidance here. I mean, he's listening to the enemy and, and, and he's inspired to give the advice that we read in this passage. Now, the advice is logical. There's a lot of things that Satan does and says that are very logical. Seems like this should be what really is true. It's like we've talked about before. There, there is in the scripture no place at all that talks about purgatory. But purgatory is a very logical and reasonable supposition. To believe there's only heaven and hell and that everybody is either going to be in heaven or hell. And in order to get to heaven, you've got to have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, which billions of people do not have. You just almost, it's just so reasonable to believe that there's got to be an in-between place where the people who aren't Adolf Hitlers end up and somehow they can get purged so they can eventually get to heaven. Well, it's logical. It just is not biblical. And so this is logical too. Barring divine intervention, the plan certainly would have succeeded. David probably would have been destroyed. 
um, Hushai, we're going to see in, in a few minutes, gives some other advice, and <laughs> his advice is based on an assumption which is probably false. But nevertheless, it, it would succeed in the long run. And, and if, if, if David is, is crushed and killed, then Absalom is the unchallenged king of Israel. Such a deal. So what does Ahithophel recommend? He recommends a quick strike force. Gather from the men that are right around you here, men I can get together this very day, 12,000. Why 12,000? Well, you know, basically 1,000 from each tribe would be the assumption, of course, that we would have here. Uh, 12,000 men. And I will personally lead them this very night in an assault down the mountain here. And we will attack David over here at the fords of the Jordan. You know, the assumption is David, and uh, apparently there was spy information indicating that David was camped over here on, on the west side of the Jordan. He had not crossed the river, and we find that out as we read further along. So let, let us just run down there really quickly, and we can, we can assault them this very night. And he said that we can do it because David and his men will be exhausted, not because of the trip totally, even though that would be part of it, but because, and remember, David is not a young man anymore. But because they're dispirited. I mean, David has been pushed out of his, he was comfortably king of Israel. And Israel had built this great empire. And now he's been shoved out. How can this be? You know, dispirited, God, is, God has abandoned us, maybe would have been the thoughts of some. And they would have been unsuspecting. Well, we've gotten out of danger's way and Absalom's got the capital and it'll take him a little while to figure out what to do next. So... Let's strike this very night. 12,000 men will be sufficient to rout the men that David have, has with him. As I mentioned before, David had the 600 Gittites. He had the Carathites and the Pelathites, which were his basic bodyguard. Roughly 1,000 men, probably, maybe a few more, that we know of. Others may have joined, but there, there were maybe 1,000 men uh, under his direct command. And so 12,000 against 1,000? Seems like... A, a very likely number to give him, to give Absalom victory. And that he would just rout the men around David, grab David, kill David, and then all the rest of them, seeing David dead, would say, okay, well, David's dead. There's no use fighting on his behalf. Absalom is his son. He's king. He looks like David. We'll, we'll accept him, and then peace will reign in, in Israel. This was Ahithophel's plan. Now, personally, I see one issue with Ahithophel's plan uh, to begin with, and that is the very idea that when these 12,000 come bursting upon the camp of David, that everybody's just going to scatter and leave David. David has with him 600 Gittites. These are the 600 men that had been with him through thick and thin through decades of time. They had been chased around by Saul. I mean, they were, they were like David's alter egos, you know. And, and you have the Carathites and the Pelathites, who were probably mostly not Israelites, who were mercenaries, but they were personally committed to David. I believe that these thousand men would not have fled. They would have fought to the death to defend their king. So I think it would have been more bloody than Ahithophel uh, thought it might be. But nevertheless, his forces might have prevailed. Well, Absalom liked the advice. And it says the elders of Israel liked the advice. And we think, now, elders of Israel, hmm, who are these guys? Well, these are probably... Absalom's psychophants, you know, the new elders of Israel, the, the, the people who have come along and have been part of the plot and now are the elders of Israel. Or it could be that the 
oh, former elders of Israel have just decided, well, Absalom's in charge, so we'll go with him now. And, and so that they have joined forces with him, maybe not exactly willingly, but seeing that which side the, of the bread the butter was on, they would decide to join with Absalom. I think some of them, if they, if they were of that second category, we're probably feeling a little guilty here. You know, we're, we're with Absalom now. We just had been with David, and David is still alive. This doesn't feel real good, but, but it's safer to be with Absalom right now since he's in charge. And so obviously if David is dead, they won't have any concern anymore because they won't be viewed as traitors if they have chosen to follow Absalom. Do we ever have question as to whether God is truly sovereign? in the affairs of man. Well, if you ask John Calvin, of course, John Calvin would have said, absolutely not. He's sovereign in all things. But sometimes when we look at the world and we see, you know, uh, missionaries shot to death in Beirut, I mean, in Sidon, and we see tragedy happening in many places and Christians dying all over the world, we think, God, are you paying attention to Venus right now or Mars or Jupiter and forgetting about the earth? Uh, no, he is always sovereign, and, and we see his sovereignty very, very clearly in this account. Nathan the prophet had promised, God had promised through Nathan the prophet, that David would reign until the day of his death. And he promised that he would then be succeeded by his descendant, specifically implying his son, who would be a true follower of God and who would build the temple of Yahweh. Let's just look ahead to that. Or actually, we're not looking ahead, we're looking back to the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, uh, reading at verse 12. David had wanted to build a temple. And at Nathan, at first Nathan said, Yeah, do it. And then God came to Nathan and says, Nope, I don't want David building this temple. And so the Lord gave Nathan other words. And these are the words that Nathan spoke to David, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So David knew what the future would bring, not in its intimate details, but in general. But, we have to always remember David is a man walking in the flesh just as you and I are. And he could have been easily persuaded by his own mind, by Satan yapping in his ear, that either he had lost favor with God because of his sin and his pride, and that God had canceled the promise. Because, you know, God had made some promises to Saul. And because Saul walked contrary to the word of God, God nixed Saul and replaced him with David. Or it could be that David could say, well, this is the way God is going to fulfill that. 
uh, God is going to take me out and, and oh, I'm going to die or I'm going to be uh, sent over here and, and, and uh, exist in ignominy for, for all my pride and sin. And that the Lord is somehow going to transform Absalom into a true man of God. Certainly David might have prayed that Absalom would become a true man of God. But as we have noted before, there is no statement in Scripture, any place, that indicates that Absalom had a heart for the Lord or even gave the Lord the time of day. But he could always hope and pray that his son would be transformed. So maybe this is the way God is fulfilling Nathan's promise. Similarly, if we are honest with ourselves, we realize that none of us is worthy of God's promises. We all know the song, we're not worthy of the least of his blessings. And so it, it could be that Satan will, will, will lean on our own uncertainties and our own knowledge of our unworthiness to convince us that, uh, you know, God's promises are for the next person, not for you because you're too bad. And therefore, God's promises are not going to be fulfilled in your life. However, I think it's important that if we keep an attitude of humility and repentance. Again, I mentioned to you last week that Erwin uh, Lutzer's message last Sunday morning in which he was talking about the fact that it isn't that we repented one time in the past, but that we live in a constant attitude of repentance. It's a rare person who goes through an entire day without having lived in a fleshly way in some point during the day or thought a fleshly thought or said a fleshly word for which repentance is needed. It's like that little, you've all probably seen that little uh, placard that we've got it stuck up by a copy machine over at the college and, and it, it says, you know, Lord, so far I haven't thought a bad thought, I haven't said a bad word, I haven't done a bad thing, I haven't eaten anything fattening, I haven't done all this, but Lord, in a few minutes I'm going to get up and I'm going to need your help, you know, <laughs> kind of idea. And uh, I'm afraid there's more truth than poetry in, in that. And so Satan has a tool by which he can kind of get in there because we all know that we fail, that we sin. But that's what I like so much, uh, not the only thing, but one of the main things I've liked about our pastor's recent set of messages is the fact he has emphasized God's grace and God's mercy. And sometimes we get away from that. We get into such a legalistic bent of mind that we forget his grace and his mercy. And God will intervene on our behalf. He will fulfill his word to the letter in our lives if we walk with him, if we have an attitude of repentance and humility in spite of our sin and in spite of our unworthiness. God will do it. And David had a spirit of humility and repentance. We see it so coming out in so many of the Psalms where, where you know, David speaks of how great God is and, and how weak he is and, and he gives God glory for what he does on the behalf of his people. In David's case, God's intervention took the form of putting doubt in Absalom's mind. Doubt concerning Ahithophel's plan. He liked the plan. The elders of Israel liked the plan. But in the back of Absalom's mind was a little question mark. 
just enough of a question mark that he decided to get a second opinion. Absalom knew his dad pretty well. And he knew his dad was a mighty warrior. And he knew that his father was not somebody you could count out just because he might be down for the moment. Because David had been down many times and he'd gotten back to be victorious. And so Absalom was not so certain that Ahithophel's plan would really work the way Ahithophel uh, explained it. He might even have thought, well, you know, I don't think the Gittites are just going to run away and leave David standing there alone. And these guys are tough. Maybe I better get a second opinion. And therefore, he decides to bring in Hushai. Now, he's not asked Hushai for advice before. In fact, remember when Hushai first came and said, look, as I had been with your father, so I'll be with you. Your father's gone. You're here. I'll be your friend and your advisor. And, and Absalom was thinking, yeah, well, I don't know. You were such a good friend of my father. What is this now? But Hushai managed to convince him, yeah, I'm, I'm really here to uh, help you. And uh, so he decides to call in Hushai and to give him uh, a second opinion. I think what he hoped, of course, was that Hushai would say, good plan. Hithophel's plan is good. I think you ought to do it. You know, if you get two opinions on the same direction, then, then maybe uh, that's a good thing to do, especially if it's from brilliant advisors as these two men were. <laughs> I used this example before, and, and you probably remember it, but back when they were trying to decide whether to build the Golden Gate Bridge or not, you know, across the straits there, they brought in the two leading geologists in this country to give an opinion about the stability of building a bridge of the style they wanted to build across that gap there. And when the ultimate reports came in, the two reports were absolutely at opposite uh, poles from each other. The one said, yep, bridge will stand. It'll be beautiful. It'll, it'll do the job. The other one said, you build it, it's going to crash. First earthquake, it's going to be gone. <laughs> well, you know, that's not too encouraging uh, for the builders. Um, Strauss, the guy who was, by the way, the guy who first required hard hats to be on a, be on a construction site was the builder of the Golden Gate Bridge. But uh, he, um, he finally decided, I'm going to go with the guy who says it'll stand. And they raised the money. <laughs> Peanuts in those days. I think it cost $35 million to build the bridge. Now it costs that much just to paint the bridge. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, as you saw in the paper, they now want to charge, well, at least have Walker pedestrians put in donations because they're so poor. <laughs> well, they've got to retrofit the bridge, and that, I guess, is going to be a pretty expensive uh, operation. But it has stood, has it not? For lo these many years. It was completed in 1937, and it's standing in 2002. That's good so far. <laughs> so far. So far, so good. So anyway, he wanted Ahushai to, to confirm Ahithophel's opinion so that then he would have a good sense about going ahead and doing this. And so he, uh, he's going to uh, call Hushai in. And let, let me just read what happens, and then next week we'll um, talk about it a little bit. Verse 5, then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time, excuse me, this time, the advice that Hithophel has given is not good. 
Oh, no. Moreover, Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears of it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant and whose heart is like the heart of a lion will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. And, but I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba as the sand that is by the sea in abundance that you, and that you personally go into battle so that we shall come upon him in one of the places where he can be found and we will fall upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men that are with him not one will be left and if he withdraws into a city then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and they will drag it into the valley until not even a small stone is found there that's quite a visual <laughs> sight if you can think of that putting wrapping ropes around a city and dragging the whole city walls and everything out into a valley someplace then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel in order that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. As we're going to see next week, this is a direct answer to prayer.